Good morning, Bodhisattvas. And welcome to our one-day sitting. I'm Charlie. I use he, they uh, pronouns. I'm one of the teachers here at Brooklyn Zen Center. And the topic of uh, this talk is a vow. Uh, so what... Uh, what is your vow? Or what is your inmost request? Or what is uh, your ultimate concern? Uh, what is your deepest wish, intention, aspiration? What is most important? What am I really doing here? You know, in the broadest sense, in the deepest sense, or in, when I'm most fully centered, what am I doing here? What is most alive? How does it come forth? What's in the way? Is this something I can do on my own? How do I inquire into my vow? How do I hear it, attend to it, clarify it, share it, and live it? So how do I practice vow, making vows, actualizing vows? And you know, what supports all of this? My, my sense is that vow is rooted in true nature, right? my Buddha nature, my whole being. It's, and it's like a request or a deep desire that comes from this like bigger, fully, like all-inclusive truth of my life beyond what I can see or know. Not my idea of myself, like the reality of this person And it's finding expression. It's working, it's working on my heart, working with what I can think, what I can say, and moving me to seek. It could be seek for freedom, seek for um all-inclusive love and compassion or, you know, a deep sense of wholeness and integration and I see this like inquiry into vow is, is like a moment-to-moment -moment practice 
Okay. True nature is not a thing. The reality of our life is not a thing. And then this vow coming from the reality of our life is not a fixed static thing. It's alive. So in Zazen, I'm opening to what's happening right here. I'm not really trying to make anything happen. I'm just really curious about like, like what's happening. And especially like in my body, in my feelings, in my sensations, in my heart, in my internal organs, in you know, everywhere I have feeling, what's happening? And how is this, how is it to inquire? Like what is it to feel fully? And to open to like the full humanness right here. And opening into like a full and vivid sense of being here in this body, this person, this heart mind, to bring up this inquiry. What is my vow? What is my inmost request? What is my heart's deepest wish or yearning? And to be open to what comes up. You know, thinking can't grasp true nature, but we can allow true nature to kind of speak. We can use words. And so without depending on thinking to let some words come up or an image and invite a, a process of, of discovery and like opening to like something real here. And letting this be like a living, breathing inquiry. And that it, can, it builds on itself. The process of clarifying and then living and then reattuning and then remanifesting my vow is feeding on itself. And we might find. Our vow is not just one thing. My vow can be multifarious. And there's a lot of support for this in the Buddhist tradition. Um, actually, our opening chant was Dogen's vow. He, he, he needed a whole page or so of text to get his vow down. And at the end of the talk, we'll recite the four Bodhisattva vows. So there's four. Um, various Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have like lists of vows that came up for them in their Bodhisattva practice. Amitabha Buddha has 48 vows. 
Avalokiteshvara, I think there's a list of 12 vows associated with Avalokiteshvara. Medicine Buddha, also 12 vows, different vows. Samantabhadra, Bodhisattva, 10 vows. Those are very important for us in our service. So in some ways, like when we, when we do a Buddhist service here, a chanting, an everyday chanting service, we're kind of, we're doing Samantabhadra's vows. Like bowing to all Buddhas in all times and places, making offerings, dedicating merit. Um, today, I want to bring up three, I'm thinking them as a currents, three vow currents, and maybe there's others. Um, so I'm not, don't need to be exhaustive, but just I want to bring up these three, and then they can seem different, but then I think I want to call them currents because I think they're all just in this one river of vow. And, you know, and in the heart of the river, they're indistinguishable. And so one is like wisdom or liberation. And two is compassion and or love, and three, well, for now, I'll call it like becoming whole, or becoming myself. So first, wisdom or liberation. I think this is why I, I think I initially came to practice. I, I wanted freedom. I wanted liberation. And some, how did I know that? How did I know I wanted freedom? You know, so there's this, there's this thing I've heard in various kind of Zen places that what you are seeking is causing you to seek. So there's this like vow or request of freedom and it's kind of coming from freedom. But then it's coming into this like this enclosure of grasping, which isn't experiencing freedom and isn't living freedom. And it's sort of like, I'm I am freedom, but I'm I don't um this isn't this isn't freedom. <laughs> and so there's this like seeking, like I wanna I wanna I if things should be different. This is not what I'm here for. And in, this, in, in my enclosure of grasping and you know, individualism and delusion and separa separation, alienation, all the ways I can think and see to like respond to that suffering just seem to perpetuate it. And, and then, but if I, can, if I attune, if I pay attention to the seeking, there's like, there's, I know there's some freedom. I don't even know how I know. I don't actually don't know it, but I feel it. And that can draw me to a Zen center.
and you know to find like like um a, a, a deeper sense of connectedness or like unconditional belonging and it's kind of like a yearning to see and to uh, realize and enjoy and live this kind of a deeper truth of what I am. How, how I actually happen. When you say emptiness, not nothing, just emptiness of separation, emptiness of happening by myself. That, that that's a delusion. And seeing through that delusion is wisdom. And I might think, when the seeking comes up, I might think, well, that's somewhere else, that freedom. Or the wisdom. I might imagine it's very far away or in the next room, or in the next year. And Zen is, Zen is reminding us, it's right here. It's actually where the seeking's coming from. So there's a lot more that could be said about this first one, but I, I wanna spend more time on, on the other two. So second is compassion or love. And um, so going back to Mahayana Buddhism in India, um, giving rise to a deep, broad vow of compassion is like this kind of vital thing for bodhisattvas. For practice, devoting practice to the liberation of all suffering. And these, these bodhisattva vows is this like affirmation of all life. And a kind of like, you know, open-hearted choice or open-hearted uh, commitment, a loving commitment to give myself completely to this world of suffering with all beings. The first one we could kind of grasp that one way of grasping freedom is like escape. Like, I think I'll just like pop out of here. And this one is like, my freedom isn't somewhere else. And so, vows, this is like a vital thing for Soto Zen. You know, it's a very big part of our formal practice. Like, we, we just recited, like, we vow with all beings, and we recite the vows after the talk. We have like we have various verses we do, and like the road verse we do every day in, in training, that's a vow. Um, we have precepts. Uh, we have a version of the refuges, which are vows. Um, when we eat, we take various vows. Eat formally. Um, and part of this is like uh, 
is uh, in Mahayana and Buddhist Bodhisattva practice, like we're kind of saying these vows over and over again to turn our life, to transform our life into the practice of vow and the practice of unfolding awakening with all beings through all our activities. So we have this like formal way of doing it in training, but you know, it's for our whole life. Uh, when I when I came to practice, this is not what brought me to practice. You know, I I didn't really think of myself as a bodhisattva. I was kind of in a kind of fairly normal way, you know, pretty self-oriented. You know, I was just I was in touch with my suffering and this urge toward for some kind of freedom. And then, but then part of my suffering, a big part, was I felt alone and isolated in it. In this kind of like enclosure of individualism. Um, eventually, this, you know, this led me to um, uh, move to Tassajara, which is a Zen monastery in California. And that was 1994. And uh, I, um, in the, my first training period, which was that fall, um, a friend passed on to me the care of a cat. Um, the cat's name was Soji, which means cleaning. And Soji was meant to kind of clean up the mice. Um, and Soji was very sweet and snuggly cat. And then a problem was that in the summer, Soji had been living in the lower area of Tassajara, but then almost, almost usually no one lived down there during the winter. So I was trying to get the cat to move into my dorm room in the, in the central area. And, but every day, I, you know, I'd let her out, she'd end up down there, and I'd have to kind of, after, after evening zazen, I'd go down there, and I'd just like meow, and she'd come running. <laughs> And then I'd kind of carry her, I'd have to usually have to carry her um, to my room. And then um, I could finally go to sleep. And this, but this would take a while. Just walking up and down would take like 10 minutes. And then sometimes it took a while for her to hear me. Or maybe she was interested in other things. And um, I was losing sleep. Um, which is a very precious thing in, a, in monastic training. Um, we wake up at 3.45 and um, always thinking, always, always desiring more sleep. Um, but at some point in this process, it became clear that someone else was kind of feeding Soji, someone who lived closer to the lower area. And so that Soji wasn't always motivated to come to me <laughs> when I went down to collect her. And so I would be calling out for quite a while. And then eventually it'd be give up. Um, and um, at first, this was like maybe not a big deal, kind of like an inconvenience. But then it started to get really cold, and then I'd worry about Soji. I want Soji to be out in this really super cold night. And, um, and so I had kind of various conversations with this person, like, like, oh, you know, I'm really trying to get Soji to move to the central area. Could you stop feeding Soji? And, 
this person was quite a bit senior to me, but had a thing for Soji. And so um, they, they kept saying they would stop and they, they didn't. And um, this went on and, and, and uh, I was getting frustrated. And actually, and I thought of this, there's a koan, there's a Zen koan, a very famous one that um, at a Chinese Zen monastery, one day there was these um, the Eastern and the Western halls were having a argument about a cat. And the Zen teacher, Nanchuan, saw this. He held up the cat and he said, if you can speak, I won't cut it. And there was no response. And so then the koan says, he cut the cat in two. Which is kind of, can be kind of a hard thing for, for Zen people to, to wonder, like, did that happen? <laughs> but I was just wondering, is this, an, is this like a non-chuan situation? Because <laughs> um, I was getting agitated and upset. So I was feeling like, I was like, I think I'm living in this koan right now. Um, and I was, and you know, and, and then these nightly walks, sometimes in vain, were continuing. And um, at a certain point, this these uh, this saying came up, and it was um, put the other first. And so this was a this was a phrase that was like, it was like almost like in hushed tones being handed from student to student at Tassajara. And it's kind of funny because it was like it wasn't coming from the teachers or the practice leadership. It was sort of like have you heard about this thing, like putting the other first? <laughs> Someone is really trying this. They like it. Um, but, you know, keep quiet about it. <laughs> it's part of the Sangha Jewel. And, um, and I let go of Soji. And I, um, and so I, I went to this person who, you know, I, I was, I had kind of difficulty with them and I was kind of the new student and they were the senior student and they were not looking out for me. Um, and I said, um, I said, would you like to take care of Soji? And they were, they were really happy. And I, there was, um, I was just relieved of self-concern. So it wasn't like, it wasn't imposed. It kind of came up from my body, kind of like a bigger me. And, um, and it was like, I would say like surprising. And so I could really treasure that, this turning as part, you know, part of where I, opened beyond like self-concern and that you know that that somehow like my my feeling is like that vow kind of like met these words put the other first and this thing could happen and at the time I, I didn't talk to anyone about this I think I didn't talk to anyone about it for like maybe 15 years partially because I think the other person didn't look so good in this in this story. 
Um, a few years later, I was still at Tausahara, and um, there was a teaching. This time, I think it was actually coming from the practice leadership um, of Dogen. And it was a teaching about the arising of the Bodhisattva vow. And so this like vow arises to free all beings from suffering. And if we kind of compare the initial spark to like fully realized Buddhahood, it's like the light of a firefly compared to a galactic firestorm. But if in giving rise to this vow, you vow to liberate all beings before yourself, then they're indistinguishable. So this is a teaching from Dogen. So if, if there can be this release of the self-orientation, just this vow is indistinguishable from completely realized awakening. And I, I was like, I was hearing this and I was really, I was letting it kind of like bounce around. And then one day toward the end of the practice period, I was leaving my room um, to head up for mid-morning Zaza and it was December and it was very cold and I touched the doorknob of my door and it was very cold. And I felt this like, deep sense of vow arise. And a vow to live for the awakening of all beings before myself. And I, and I walked up to the Zendo, just like appreciating this was like something new in my heart. This is something different. something different in my stride and something about like the capacity of a human heart and then and then I took up this practice from Ru Jing which was Dogen's teacher that every time he would every period of Zazen he would the first thing he would do is to set this intention I sit for the awakening of all beings before myself um, going forward a few more years, met Sarah, we got married, and our, we had a daughter, uh, Kaya. And um, when Kaya appeared, um, I, I felt like something changed in my heart again. Like this, this kind of like, this was a new kind of love. And I felt like I was, I, this wasn't my doing. And like, I, I think I felt like a new ventricle opened in my heart. And then a few years later, uh, let's see, this be now 2006, I was at what's called um, Shuso, a head monk uh, for the fall practice period at Tausahara. And this is a role where you start to teach. You start to give talks and have a lot of conversations. And 
Um, and it's also, it can be a role, it seems to be part of the role that the Sangha loves the Shuso. And I really felt this loving support from the Sangha. And I felt like a new ventricle opened in my heart <laughs> again. And, and I see this happening again and again. And I felt this happening here, coming to Brooklyn Zen Center. We've been here, Sarah and I have been here for uh, a little over a year and a half. And I feel like my heart continued to open and change and grow. In my life of vow, growing. So I'm very, I'm very happily devoted to this Sangha. And this inquiry, inquiry into vow, it can happen in the stillness and the silence of zazen. And even then, it's deeply informed by Sangha, by spiritual community. And I feel my heart is getting shaped and reshaped by Sangha. I feel my practice and my questions and my struggles and my suffering and my vows and my awakening moment by moment, like reshaped, informed, you know, deepened, uh, stretched by the practice and those questions and the struggles and the suffering and the vow and the freedom of Sangha. And I feel like this can happen, this can happen when we're sitting silently together and this can happen when we're in casual conversation and it can happen when we're chanting together. We're chanting vows and, then, and we're hearing each other chant vows while we're chanting our vows. And this is like, all this, all this interaction is happening. I'm opening to vow or um, inmost request um, in the middle of my suffering. So Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, who's the, he's the Japanese teacher who came to California and kind of, you know, gave rise to our lineage here in the United States of Soto Zen, our particular lineage. So he's like, he's my teacher's teacher. And he's, he's, he talked about inmost request, which I also, which I feel I put together with vow. He talked about inmost request. He said, you know, we can, um, we can, we can clarify this with our thinking and our understanding. But he said, you know, the understanding will only help you so much. And he said, and when things get hard, it's usually not reliable. You know, so he said, he talked about finding inmost request in struggle, in difficulty. And he said, with a tear. And that 
that clarification can really help me and can help me when things get hard. So I'm opening to vow in the flames, in the fire. And allowing the, the closed or hardened parts of me to soften. You know, and with a tear. I recently came across a quote uh, from Zadie Smith, and she says, I think the hardest thing for anyone is accepting that other people are real as you are. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as examples, or things to make yourself feel better, or things to get over or under. Just accepting that they are absolutely as real as you are. I really appreciate this. You know, so how is how is that? How do we become real to each other? How do I become real to myself? How do I allow my suffering to be real? How do I allow the, the deepest parts of my suffering, my wounding, my pain, to be real? And I'm, I'm seeing and feeling many forces of like conditioning, my conditioning, my cultural conditioning, seeing forces of like social media to not to not be real, to not be real to myself, to not be open to the realness of others, to not face the real suffering. And he's like forces of like disconnection. And you know, how domination functions, how like patriarchy and racism and homophobia, transphobia, like thriving through obscuring the realness of each other. Ah. This clock is totally wrong. <laughs> um, okay, well, I better get to the third current. <laughs> I thought I had like half an hour here. Okay. Um, so this third current, becoming whole or becoming myself, um, I kind of want to bring up as a distinguishable current because like the first two can have this kind of universal quality to them. And like, and I think vow can also manifest in a very personal way. And that it's, it's vital to honor this. So what is the vow of fully being this person? to you know, fully manifest, express the particularity of you and how you identify. And that this is like part of becoming real to myself, being real to others. And that you know, part of my suffering being real, other suffering being real, 
is also, you know, goes hand in hand with allowing my joy to be real, allowing others' joy to be real. You know, and that like there's a there's a we are like boundlessly relational beings. This is our true nature. But this is not like this is not a hinder to particularity of this person. Those things go together. And it's not that like in giving up the grasping and delusion of self-orientation and individualism that I stop being this individuality, this particular person. This particular person is the medium of liberation and love in this world. Um, I think about uh, Tara Bodhisattva. Um, Tara took note of the many Buddhas she had encountered. They were male. And so she made a vow. She said, I have developed bodhicitta as a woman for all my lifetimes along the path I vow to be born as a woman. And in my final lifetime, when I attain Buddhahood, then too, I will be a woman. So this isn't a, a radical moment in Buddhist history. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of Buddhist texts that say, like, when you, when, you know, when a being manifests in Buddhahood, it's as a man. And these, these things, are, these vows, these currents are intertwined. Right? So I might think I'm just here for my freedom. But if I'm really interested in freedom, I'll find out. My freedom is intertwined with everyone's freedom. And I might have a vow to fully be myself, but I'm not fully myself just by myself. This is something we, I came into the world in relationship. I'm, I'm only in relationship. And, you know, we're doing this together in this really deep sense. And so I also see this kind of third current that's kind of integrative or like, like there's practice and there's who I am and I'm, these are coming together in spiritual maturity, maturation. You know, in, this, in November, I talked about gender and sexuality and the Buddha nature precept of sexuality. So this bodhisattva practice is not about disappearing. But with this body, living vow, living love and liberation in this world. How how many minutes do I have now? Three, okay. But this story came up for me just this morning. Uh, So Nagarjuna, Dogen was looking at these portraits of of Zen teachers, Zen ancestors in a Chinese monastery 
and um, there's like these nice people sitting in full lotus. And then he gets to the one for Nagarjuna, who's the famous Indian ancestor. And um, Nagarjuna is known for entering a samadhi of the full moon. And so for Nagarjuna's portrait, there wasn't a person sitting. There was a, just a big full moon. And Nagarjuna was really, I mean, a Dogen was, was not happy with this portrait. Because for Dogen, that made it look like, well, your body, his body disappeared. And all that you could see was this full moon. And Dogen is like, he manifested the full moon with this body. With this, you know, this flesh and bones and blood, that, that was manifesting the full moon. And then we have a whole nother section here. And I'll just say really, I'll try to say this really quickly, but gan is the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese character for vow. It also means prayer. And just to say that, I feel like kind of vow kind of emphasizes like kind of a self power and prayer asking for help is this like other power and that that this these are one thing in our practice or these are like we're kind of we want to be in the middle this isn't this isn't just heroic it's also it's like we're constantly asking for help and i you know i do this in zazen it's a bottomless resource to ask for help can always ask, just help, and that the that and that we're not looking for a. Uh, we don't have an idea about what the help is, because actually the deepest help it's 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 not separate from the asking. Thank you very much. May our intention Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.